And we are in Ezra chapter 3 tonight. So if you can make sure that you're ready to read through that section, we'll go ahead and begin. By way of review, before we start this study, um, remember that the last time we spent quite a bit of time talking about the prophecies from the scriptures that really had a lot to do with the events that are taking place as Ezra has been recording them in the first couple of chapters, talking about Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, who was prophesied by Isaiah 150 years before he was born, talking about the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah had uh, told the people of God that they would have to be in Babylon, and then the promise that they would return uh, from Babylon, Babylonian captivity after that 70-year period of time. And, of course, Cyrus was in instrumental in accomplishing that very fact. Uh, the, the various other passages that we looked at, like, for instance, in Daniel chapter 9, talking about uh, the 70 years there also, that Daniel recognized Jeremiah had written of those things. So all of those prophecies, all of those recordings or, or records rather of the the various prophecies that are given to us in scripture give us a really strong uh, confidence in God's fulfilling his prophetic word and it's just one place that we can go to there are so so many other prophecies that aren't related to this particular story but they are indeed prophetic statements that God has made throughout his word and we should be very very uh excited about knowing what the Word of God does say with regard to future events. In Isaiah and a few other places as well, I mentioned last week is also that God spoke specifically about the fact that He knows the beginning from the end, and because He is able to see the future, He proves Himself to be God by speaking things that are yet to come. And over and over again, he reminds us of that very fact. No other God, no other way that any other religion can accomplish that which his people have been able to accomplish through the prophetic word. Chapter 3 will begin the process of rebuilding the temple. And there's a few other things that are going to be looked at as well in chapter 4. If we get that far, I think we will. And it's all got to do with the fact that God brought back to the land a select group of individuals. Uh, just as they had said uh, in chapter 1, I believe it was. Let me try to turn there and I'll find it for you quickly. Ezra said that in verse 5 of chapter 1 that God put this desire in their hearts. It says, the heads of the fathers of the household of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all those whose spirit God had moved. They rose up and they came to Jerusalem. But as it turned out, there were less than 50,000 souls that had returned. But God put it in their hearts to do so. They wanted to come because God made it so. There are others who did not come. 
many, many others. Comparatively, uh, there were many more people than just 50,000 in that day of the Jews living in captivity. But those were the only ones that had that desire to come back. And it was a very difficult journey, about 900 miles through a wilderness region that is very, very dangerous to travel on. And they made it probably by traveling perhaps 10 or 15 miles a day because there were women and children and animals and carts and, you know, they didn't really have a, a fast way of getting across that desert area. It would have been slow going. And as a result, it's likely that they took around three months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. But now they're in, Bab- in Jerusalem, and they've been there for, we're not told exactly how long, but chapter 3 begins by telling us that it's now the seventh month of the year. Now, their calendar year begins in the springtime, in their first month of Abib. In the seventh month, that's in the fall. So it's around September, October of 536 AD, B.C., And it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 3, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Joshua, or Jeshua, either way it's uh, written, it's still a reference to the high priest in that day who had come from Babylon to Jerusalem. He's a direct sen- descendant of Aaron and Levi, uh, the Levite rather, and as, as such he is a le- legitimate high priest for the people of God in Jerusalem now at this time. It tells us also that Zerubbabel was the son of Shealtiel. And looking through the chronology, we find that he's a direct descendant of David, a direct descendant of David, but not through the kingly line, but through another line of David. We're not told here, but he was indeed a descendant of David. So he is a civil leader, but not a king. He doesn't have the right to the throne of David because he wasn't in the line of the kings of David. But still, he's a very important figure in the development of this story in Ezra. And also, in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, as well as in Nehemiah, we'll find his name mentioned. But these two men were considered the, the religious and civil leaders of that group of 50,000 men. And the very first thing that they do before they start laying the foundation of the temple is they build an altar. They built it for the sole purpose of being able to offer sacrifices on this first day of the seventh month. That first day of the seventh month happens to be the Feast of Trumpets. It's one of the seven feasts of Israel. And that particular feast of Israel is a very, very special feast for the people of God as well in Israel, as well as they. It's, it's also a very special, I believe, uh, feast for us in this present day. Because 
whenever you read a reference to the Feast of Trumpets, remember that it is a type of a trumpet blast that will be sounded for the church of God when Christ comes for his church. I'm not saying that it's going to happen on the day of the Feast of Trumpets. I'd love it if it does. And I have to remind you that I personally have a greater height of expectation on that day than most every other day. Although I I have a sense of God's sending the Lord Jesus anytime. It doesn't have to be one day or one night in particular. As a matter of fact, none of us knows the day or the hour. But I do know that I have a heightened sense of expectation when I come upon that very, very special day when the trumpet is blasting in Jerusalem. They didn't hear that trumpet blasting in Jerusalem for now 70 years. And this is the first time they're able to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets in Jerusalem. What a tremendous privilege it was for those 50,000 men and women to be able to enjoy hearing the shofar sounding uh, throughout the area from the future temple grounds of the city of Israel in that day. What a privilege they had. What a great joy that must have brought to them. Tears to their eyes, I'm sure, as they celebrated this great feast. It's a very special feast indeed. But now the next feast in that seventh month is on the tenth day of that month, and that's the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the day that they were to bring a very special sacrifice by the high priest into the temple through the holy place into the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they didn't have the temple built. They didn't even have the foundation laid. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant there. They didn't have any of the various things that go into that inner sanctuary uh, that would be expected for the high priest to enter into that place and he only once a year. The, the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place wasn't yet made. So there was a lot missing. They couldn't observe the Feast of the Atonement. But the day came and they were still offering sacrifices. It tells us that they offered sacrifices unto the Lord, burnt offerings. That's how it started, but they offered other offerings as well, as we'll see later. A burnt offering, you may recall, is a complete offering unto the Lord and it allows the people of God to enter into God's presence through a type of what Christ has done for us. That offering was a very symbolic offering where they could enter into and wor- the presence of God and worship Him in that place that God had prescribed for them to worship Him. So the burnt offering was a very, very special offering indeed. And they offered them morning and evening. It was a burnt offering on that first day of the month when the trumpet was blasting and the first offering, the smoke, was rising up into what will become the temple but not yet built at that point. What a great, wonderful time it must have been for them. But it was also a time when there was a lot of uncertainty. It tells us in verse 
3, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. But there was a fear that they had because of the people who were in that territory, in that region, before they had arrived. Those people were what will become what was known in Jesus' day as the Samaritans. They were a mixed breed. They were populating the entire region of what is now Israel uh, because they were sent into the land by the Assyrian kingdom when the Assyrians defeated Israel, the northern ten tribes, in 722 B.C., most of the people were taken out of the land and they brought foreigners into the land. And eventually those foreigners interacted with the few people who were left in the land, intermarrying, and they became what is known as a mixed breed called the Samaritans many, many years down the road. But they're there in that territory and there's a great fear that they are going to cause problems for the people of God who have come from Babylon to build the, ten, the, tab, the uh, temple and to establish themselves in the cities all around. But that fear has somewhat been overcome by the fact that they're able to burn those offerings unto the Lord. It's important, you know, the temple hasn't, as I said, yet been built. But they didn't need the temple, really, to worship God. They needed the altar to worship God. It's not the house. It's not the place where we gather. It's the presence of God that we should be looking for and expecting to find when we gather together, wherever that may be. It may be in an open field, at a a riverbed. It may be at the top of a mountain. It may be in a church building. It may be in a home. Wherever it is, where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst of us. Jesus, our sacrifice, has made it so that we don't have to have burnt offerings because he was our offering unto the Lord that allowed us to have that fellowship that we can have whenever we come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. They were gathered together under the Mosaic Covenant. The the Mosaic Law dictated that they must come to God in that way by offering up a burnt sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. And for us, the blood was shed once for all. So there are similarities in those burnt offerings that we can see, but they are just a picture of or a type of, a foreshadowing of that which was to come through Christ Jesus. But they were rejoicing. They had this wonderful privilege now of, for the first time since they had entered into captivity, now they're in Jerusalem offering up these sacrifices unto the Lord morning and evening. It says in verse 4, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles isn't just a single day feast. It's a feast that is a week-long feast. And there were certain particular sacrifices that needed to be made each of those days. And the beginning, and especially at the end of that seven-day period, there was a great deal of sacrifices that needed to be done. And they now have the word of God that they are relying on, that which was written by Moses, to be able to do it precisely as Moses had determined must be done. 
The Feast of Tabernacles is a commemoration, if you remember, of their wilderness journeyings for 40 years in the Sinai. It's an appropriate time for them because they had just experienced a wilderness journey of their own, if you will. They came all the way from Babylon across that wilderness desert area. And again, it only took them some perhaps 90 days instead of 40 years. But I think it's very likely that they were mindful, perhaps more than we realize, of the import of this particular feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, was given by Moses to remind them that God was with them in their wilderness journeyings. I'm reminded also that while they were in Babylon, they were so very, very longing for this opportunity to to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. In fact, one of the Psalms, Psalm 137, speaks of that desire that they had while they were in captivity. I'd like to read just the first few verses of that psalm. It's Psalm 137. You don't need to go there, but it reads this way. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. We wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked for us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And now they're here. They're actually in the city that they longed for. And they're worshiping the Lord on this great feast day of the tabernacles. What a great joy that had to have come to their hearts for this privilege, this opportunity to worship God in such a way as this. None of them had experienced that except for perhaps a very few who were very old men and women who may have been alive or would have been alive before they had been taken captive in 586 or even 597 B.C., some 50 or more, 50 or 60 years before this event. So they would have been young adults or even children back then. And now they're experiencing it again in Jerusalem for the first time. It says in verse 5, Afterward they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. So there were special days where they had to have certain offerings, an offering for every new moon, every time the cycle of the moon uh, would end and the new moon was obvious in the sky, that required them to have a particular sacrifice made for that day. And other days as well, that were days of consecration throughout their history, days of Sabbath, the special uh, days that were set aside by the Lord, all of them were being observed now having begun in that first day of the seventh month. They're continuing now. And again, besides all of the required offerings, it tells us they were also willingly offering free will offerings unto the Lord. The free will offerings are peace offerings where they could fellowship with God, kind of like our communion that we have in the sense that by taking of that particular 
offering together with the Lord. They were communing with Him. They were partaking of that bread, of that rather meat, in God's presence. And He is also symbolically eating that meal with them. And in that way, in their minds, they become one with God. That free will offering was something of great import as well. Verse 6 says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So there was no evidence yet of anything other than the altar of the Lord. That was all they needed. They were worshiping God at that location. They knew where the original temple had stood. It was just a complete shambles. But they're ready now to begin the process of rebuilding the temple. It tells us in verse 7, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So Cyrus even gave them permission to go to the Tyre and Sidon region where lumber could be purchased. They were provided the means by which they could get that lumber that was needed for the building of the temple. So everything was already arranged for by Cyrus, the king of Persia. What a great, generous Gentile king he certainly was. Verse 8 says, Now for the second month, or now in the second month, rather, of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, Joshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So the work has begun now in the beginning of the second year, the second month of the year. So seven months have passed, and still there was nothing being done as far as the building of the temple is concerned, except that they took that much time to accumulate all the materials that they would need for that purpose. So now in the first or the second month of that second year, while they are now in Jerusalem, they're ready to begin the process of building. It tells us then in verse 9, Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Hanadad uh, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Remember when David was reigning in Jerusalem, at first, the temple was, or the tabernacle of Moses was still in Shiloh, and it needed to be brought to Jerusalem. David had wanted that so, so very much. It didn't happen until the second try that they were successful in getting the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant set up in Jerusalem. Of course, David couldn't build the temple. That would be done by his son Solomon later. But David had made arrangements uh, for temple worship. And one of his priests, whose name was Asaph, was a songwriter and singer who was very, very instrumental in 
writing and singing the songs, and his he and his family were the singers that were primarily used by David in his day. And his descendants, over the years, were still being used for that purpose. Even though they went into captivity, they still knew that that was their responsibility. When they returned back home, they would be the singers. They would be the ones who would be playing the instruments and clanging the cymbals and the tambourines and rejoicing and leading the people in worship in the temple when it would be built. And they're there now, and it tells us in verse 11, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. They sang responsively. What that means is that the priests would say a phrase and the people would respond with another phrase. And that probably, I think, most likely would have been Psalm 136. If you're familiar with Psalm 136, you know that it is a great, lovely psalm that repeats the phrase, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. And that's precisely what He is telling us here that they sang. So I'm convinced that they most likely were singing Psalm 136. But it was a time of rejoicing, a time of great celebration, a time of great thankfulness in worshiping the Lord and singing praise to His holy name. Worship should always be that way, my friends. You know, when we worship the Lord, we should be worshiping God with such a joyful heart, singing praise unto our God, lifting up holy hands unto Him, just worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, praising Him, giving Him thanks, showing us uh, ourselves unto Him as living sacrifices, willingly being ready to be used by Him for whatever purpose. And when we sing songs of praise, it should open our hearts to fellowship with Him through His Holy Spirit. You know, Paul talked about the fact that we should be singing unto the Lord continually in psalms and and hymns and praise unto our Lord. Remember when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, they were not complaining about the conditions they were in. They were singing praise unto the Lord. They were singing songs of worship unto the Lord. And the Lord obviously was very pleased with their singing because he released them through a great earthquake in that wonderful experience that they had in that jail cell. And the jailer and all his house were ultimately saved as a result of that. Praise and worship are so, so very important for all of us. And we should remember to be in the middle of all of that which is going on in our assembly most joyfully praising Him. Tells us then, all the people shouted with a great shout. I should say so. And when they praised the Lord, that shout must have been resounding. It says they gave a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was finally laid. Now they're making progress. The foundation of the temple has now been laid. What a joyful thing. The whole temple hasn't been built yet. Just the foundation, just the the rock base upon which the temple will be built. But that's enough for them to say, we're making progress. We're seeing results. We are going to have our temple after all. This is a time of great rejoicing. However, 
It tells us in verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and a sound was heard afar off. Now, he doesn't tell us why those elderly people were weeping. There's two possibilities here. One is, they may have been weeping because the original temple built by Solomon was a marvel of, of uh, workmanship that they were so, so proud of. It was one of the wonders of the world in its day. They had seen that temple, and now they're looking at the footprint of a much smaller temple that will ultimately be built, and as they know it's not going to be reaching that glory that once was in that place that was known as the house of God. So it may have been that they were weeping because of their sadness over that fact. Or it may also be that they were weeping over the fact that they were now, after 50 years in exile from the time of 586 B.C. until 536 or 537 B.C., that period of 50 years where they couldn't enter the temple. And now they are standing on that place where the temple will be built and the foundation has been laid and it was just an overwhelming experience to them that brought tears to their eyes. And they cried out, perhaps for both reasons. I think personally it was for the first of the two reasons that I've mentioned. Because the temple that was built in that day certainly wasn't anything like in terms of its grandeur that the temple that Solomon had built once was. Yet that second temple, many, many years down the road from this point, looking forward to the time of Christ, that temple will be expanded upon and it will be known as Herod's temple. But it really isn't just Herod's temple. The base of that temple is the temple that is going to be built here in Ezra's day or slightly before Ezra's day. I need to remind us all, by the way, that Ezra here is recording history from his perspective. He's not there in Jerusalem with this first group of 50,000. He's going to come much later. And the last part of the book of Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, will relate his own particular experience in Jerusalem. But this is something that has taken place from his perspective, several years before he actually arrives in Jerusalem. The temple is not yet built, and it's going to take a while to actually complete that building of the temple. Part of the reason for that is because now that they've entered into Jerusalem, now that they've begun worshiping the Lord, guess what would happen whenever the people of God come together and have a wonderful experience in the presence of the Lord? Opposition comes your way. Doesn't that sound familiar? It should, because that's really very, very common. Whenever the people of God are enjoying the blessings of the presence of the Lord, you can almost be certain that it will be followed almost immediately with persecution, with opposition, with resistance. And that's precisely what's happened as we approach the rest of that particular scene in this great book of Ezra beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4. 
It tells us, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him also since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now remember, these are the half-breeds. These are what will become known as the Samaritans. They're not really descendants of Israel. They're half-breeds that married some of the women of the people of Israel who had remained in the land. They didn't really know God. In fact, when they first came into the land, they were having some major problems because the wild animals were attacking them. As they had come into the land, they didn't have the protection that they had had in their own countries, and they didn't know how to get the God of that land to help them. They had no idea how to worship the God of that land, which would have been Jehovah. However, the Israelites really didn't know either. They were so far from God by that time, remember. But what did take place is that those people contacted the king of Assyria and asked him to send some of the priests from the nation of Israel back into the land so they could teach these Gentiles how to worship the God of Israel. Well, the Levites came back into the land that were requested of them, but they didn't know anything about it either because they didn't really have a background that they should have had in how to worship their God. They were just as far from God as the Gentiles who had come into the land. But as a result of that, they became what is now again known as the Samaritans. And they're the ones now here that are coming into Jerusalem and saying, we've seen that you're starting to build a temple. We want to help. We want to worship your God just like you are. Because they had that desire to know the God of Israel for their own purposes. They didn't really have any real understanding of who this God was, but they were offering sacrifices unto this God because the Levites had taught them at least that much. But that's not enough. They were outsiders. They had no rights. They weren't Jews. So not being Jews, they couldn't participate in what the Jews were doing to rebuild their own house. And so, though they asked politely at this point, Zerubbabel tells us in verse 3, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So they're taking a stand, they're saying, Look, Cyrus gave us this commission to build the temple not to invite anybody else to join with us. We don't need your help. And quite frankly, although he said it a little bit more politely than this, we don't want your help. But that rejection of them turned out to be a source of contention. It tells us in verse 4, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Cyrus ultimately passed away and Darius took his place. By then it is known as the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus was a Persian. 
Darius was a king of Medea, and they combined the two kingdoms to become the very powerful Medo-Persian empire that would have been finally taking the place of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and his family. Verses 6 through the end of the chapter are really a parenthesis. It's not chronological here. There are many years that separate the events that we just looked at with the events that are going to be discussed in these subsequent verses of chapter 4. It's very close to more so than the previous verses that we've just been reading, more close to the time of Ezra. As a matter of fact, uh, there are kings that would be mentioned here that are contemporary to Ezra. So we, we know that verse 6 begins a recollection of another source of opposition, not to the building of the temple, but to the building of the walls of Jerusalem. So that will take us to the time of Esther and the time of Nehemiah, both of which are contemporaries of Ezra. Verse 6 says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of, Jeru of Judah and Jerusalem. So, these are the enemies. They've been after King Cyrus all the way through his reign until the reign of Darius, and now they're sending a word to the king Ahasuerus, who is a king in Persia that we have in the story of Esther. If you read the story of Esther, which is just two books to the right of where we are tonight, it's a wonderful story of God's deliverance of his people. They were still in captivity. They were left behind. They weren't part of the group of 50,000 that came into the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding territories. They stayed in that captivity region of Babylon and other areas that now are reigned over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And King Ahasuerus is one of the kings who reigns in a very large territory for the Medo-Persian Empire. You'll find a great deal more of information of his reign and the uh, situation that resulted in the things that went on under his reign if you were to read the book of Ezra. It's a great read. It's not a long uh, book, but it's a very good book to read. It gives you a lot of insight as to what was going on to those people who were still in captivity while the people in Jerusalem were trying to rebuild the temple. By the way, the temple did not get built right away. And that's one of the things that we'll be looking at when we get to chapter 5. There was a delay. Because of the opposition, they did not build any further than just the foundation. And it was just the foundation for several years without any construction going on at all because of that opposition. And now, again, Ezra is relating this story of another opposition, this time with regard to the building of the city of Jerusalem and the wall surrounding it. In verse 7, he mentions another king. He mentions that in the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, 
Tabel and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. This is a time, again, along with the king Ahasuerus, this king was Artaxerxes and he was over the entire empire. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer. And this man, Artaxerxes, is a very, very important person in terms of biblical prophecy. And I'll get to that before the end of the night, if I can move along quickly here. But it tells us that in his days, they wrote this letter. And it says in verse 8, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Deanites, the Apophosophites, and the Tarpalites, and the people of Persia, and Erech, and Babylon, and Shushan, and the Dehavites, and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled to the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river, and so forth. He's referring to all the various nations that were sent by Assyria into the land of Israel when they were destroyed uh, and they were taken out of their own land and these nations were brought in starting in 722 B.C. That's the northern tribes, not the tribe of Judah. And then it says in verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. I'm glad he said and so forth. I think he's referring to all those names I couldn't read just in the last paragraph. But it says in verse 12, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from Jerusalem, or came up from you rather, have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Notice the emphasis on rebellious and evil city. They want to give the impression that Jerusalem is bad, bad, bad. And that's the, the impression that they're giving to Artaxerxes because they don't want the Jews to continue building the wall. Let it now be known, verse 13 says, to the king, that if this city is built and the wall is completed, they will not pay tax tribute or custom, and the king's treasure will be diminished. So there's an incentive, King Artaxerxes, better take action because you're going to lose income if you don't. And then he goes on and says, now because we received support from the palace, these individuals were part of the group of individuals who received income from Artaxerxes to manage the property, to manage the land. Now that he's saying, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. They're sort of telling some of the truth. Jerusalem was rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, and that's why he finally came and destroyed the city. So this, they're not lying about that, but Jerusalem has really no intent at this part of the story to do anything against Artaxerxes. They have been blessed by Cyrus, and they are still there in the land even at this point, and they had been hindered by others 
from completing the temple. And now that the wall is being hopefully built, they want to just simply live their lives in peace. But that's not going to happen. Fast forward to 2024. The Jews still want to live in peace, in Jerusalem, the city of peace. But the world is against them. The world hates them and there is going to continually be a move against the people of God that I think will only intensify over the days ahead. Unless God does a mighty work in the hearts and lives of many people, I see terrible times ahead for the people of God. Even if they defeat Hamas, even if they are able to make it so that Gaza is no longer a threat, they've got enemies all around them. And you know as well as I do that the Word of God speaks very clearly that Jerusalem is going to be a stumbling block to the nations. And they are going to have a time of tribulation such as no man has known nor ever will known ever again. That day is coming still. But the people of God in this time were confident in the fact that they were there peacefully and wanted to have that joy that they had so longed for while they were in captivity in Babylon. They had already begun the worship of the Lord, but the temple hadn't yet been laid, and now there's an effort to stop the building of the walls. And over and over again, opposition comes against the people of God. And it's a terrible thing to see, but God is still with them. God is still taking care of them. God is still controlling all of these things because He is the one who has arranged for it all to be taking place. It's for His purpose. It's by His design. But the king answered them. He responded to this outrageous letter. And he says this in verse 17, to Rehum the commander, to Shishai the scribe, and to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command and a search has been made. And it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem, who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. That is significant. I pointed out that that is something that I'll be bringing up at the end of our teaching tonight, and that's what we're going to do right now, because that command that he's referring to is a command that he had given, and it's recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Nehemiah was again the cupbearer of this king, Artaxerxes. And it tells us that he was praying about the condition of the Jews in Jerusalem, how difficult it had been. And he was so very concerned about his family. One of his relatives had written to him about the terrible times that they were going through. And he was praying to the Lord and he was weeping and having such a difficult time. But as a cupbearer, he had to go before the king. And because he was a cupbearer, one of the things that he probably needed to recall 
as the cupbearer, he ought to look very, very happy. Because if he had a broken countenance, if he had a sad look on his face, the king likely would pick up on that and wonder, why is he sad? He's my cupbearer. Perhaps there's poison in the cup. And the only way that the king could verify if that was true or not would be for the cupbearer to drink the cup. And if he died, then the king would have been spared. So the job had a bit of a challenge. Nehemiah was sad because of the things that were going on in Jerusalem, and he had to present himself before the king, and that sad countenance was something that he just simply couldn't get rid of. The king recognized it. But also the king asked him very, very wonderfully, what's wrong, Nehemiah? You're never like this. There's something going on. What is it? And so Nehemiah began to explain to Artaxerxes of the condition of the people in Jerusalem. And as it turned out, he found favor in the king. And the king, it says in verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 2, the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be if you go to Jerusalem and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And he set him a time. And it is there, as it is recorded by Nehemiah, that Artaxerxes made the decree to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. That is the beginning of the time that is recorded in Daniel's chapter 9 prophecy regarding the 70 weeks that we call 70 weeks, but there's 70 years, uh, or weeks of years rather, a total of 490 years that will transpire from that time that the decree is made to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. It happened in 442 B.C. So we have a date. We know that for a fact. That's the date that Nehemiah was given the privilege of returning to Jerusalem with a number of people to rebuild the wall. That is what's been spoken of in this opposition that we just read of. Artaxerxes said, when I give the command, then they will be able to start building again. And he did that in 442 B.C. 490 years have not completely passed as far as the people of Israel are concerned. But 483 of those 490 years have passed. The last seven years that God has promised in his word to Daniel that he is going to uh, uh, determine for the people of Israel is that last seven years of tribulation that we have not yet seen. But the prophecies have been fulfilled up to that point. Lastly, it tells us in verse 22, back in Ezra, take heed now that you do not fail. This is Artaxerxes completing his letter. Take heed that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now, when the copy of the king of Artaxerxes', king Artaxerxes letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus, the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was determined, rather, it was discontinued until the second year of the king of Darius, king of Persia. Now, that is sort of confusing because he's now saying that the letter from Artaxerxes had to do with the termination of the building of the temple in the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. But he's actually using it 
to show that opposition had come. And you've got to go back to the very first five verses of chapter 4 to make it so that verse 23 or 24 and 20, uh, well actually verse 24, the last verse, makes any sense. Verse 24 applies to verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Verses 6 through 23 are a parenthetical section of Scripture that talks about another opposition that also came in Ezra's day. And Ezra's going to spend a little bit more time in chapters 5 and 6 talking about what was historical data from his perspective until at chapter 7 he begins then to unfold some of his contemporary uh, information that he still needs to share in this great book. So, that having been said, we have been looking at a great moment in Israel's history. The people of God have come into the land, and they're there to stay, and they're going to build their temple. Now again, there was opposition, and it took several years before they were actually able to complete that temple because of the opposition. But it will be built, and after that is taking place, then will come the time when they will be able to have the city wall built. And when that takes place, they will now be occupying the city of Jerusalem. But they won't have a king over the city, over the nation of Judah. Remember, in 586 B.C., the last king of Israel was removed from his throne. He was of the line of David. And it was at that time that the time of the Gentiles began in earnest. There's no king seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. There has not been since 586 B.C. So we are technically still in the time of the Gentiles because there's no Jewish king seated on the throne in Israel, in Jerusalem. That day is coming and that king is Jesus. That's what you and I all have to look forward to. There is coming a day, in spite of the fact that all the stuff that's going on in the world around us is happening, it's happening because God's allowing it, because He's moving things in that direction. However long it may be before He comes for His church, we're going to be taken out of here. But the people of God are still going to have a time that God is going to deal with them. And that time is that which we call the tribulation period. A time of seven years. That time is somewhere down the road. We don't know how it's going to take place or when. But we do know that the Word of God specifically states that it will. And I believe that we as a church will not be involved with any of that because that time is specifically for the Jewish people and the rest of the world who are Christ rejectors. Because they have rejected Christ, they also will go through that same period. But Jesus made it so very clear that we who believe in Him have no reason to fear. He spoke through Paul the Apostle and said that we will not suffer the wrath of God. And that's what that seven-year period is all about, the wrath of God. Yes, they call it the Great Tribulation. And yes, Jesus did say that we in this world shall have tribulation. But there is a distinct difference between the tribulation that we experience in this world and the tribulation that they will experience in that day. This 
experience of tribulation that we have has a source that is demonic. The source of our tribulation is the enemy of our souls. The source of the tribulation in that day is God himself. It's his wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world and on a people that have rejected him, including his own, until the day that he sets his feet on Mount Zion and they recognize him as their Messiah and he will establish his kingdom. The time of the Gentiles will come to an end when he sits on the throne in Jerusalem and reigns for a thousand years there in that place and we will be reigning with him during that time. It's a great future that we have, my friends. It's a great opportunity to tell others that we have now about that great future and I believe the time is running out. So, let us continue to pray for the lost and to be lights in the world and trust that the Lord is coming soon. God bless.